Blind Spot podcast. Um, we are joined this week. No, that was a terrible intro. I'm so distracted by the fact that I messed up. Okay. Hello and welcome to the Blind Spot podcast, the next edition, the second, the third. I think we're on the third one now. Uh, I'm Isabella <laughs> Kaminska and you're John Seth, also known as Josh in my world. And uh, in, on this episode, we we are being uh, joined by Francis Coppola, who I uh, not also producer of Ben Hur, <laughs> <laughs> producer of Dracula and other great movies. But also, did Francis Coppola make Ben Hur? I feel like I feel like he did. No, I don't, I, uh, no, not as far as I know. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it was it, Dracula is one of his, and and The Godfather, isn't it? Didn't he do Godfather? Apocalypse yeah. now. Definitely um, Godfather, producer of The Godfather. Okay, so, today. so today we are joined by Francis Ford Coppola, <laughs> the producer. <laughs> no, it's Francis, uh, no coiner extraordinaire, but as I always say, one of the sharpest critics of uh, crypto, so much so that she is a no coiner that ends up being, um, you know, fully invited to every crypto uh, event that ever happens. So Francis, thank you for joining us. And um, those who, who you won't know this, but I accidentally already started recording this. So uh, I, I forgot to start recording this. This is our second go. I'm just being transparent. But Francis, just, thank you and we, say we hello practice. again. We practice hello, <laughs> Francis, hello and welcome for the second time. Hello, everyone. So we were gonna talk about Voyager uh, but also 3AC and all sorts of other exciting things that have happened since uh, the breakdown of Tara Luna. Josh and I did a podcast with one of his mates. In Well, was he a mate? Uh, he's a mate. He's I, a we mate. don't use that word in America. He <laughs> <laughs> was excellent. A pal, a buddy, friend, you know. He was really excellent, and he gave us the lowdown on Celsius, um, which I found extraordinary in the whole kind of evolution of DeFi and flash loans, which I thought were very interesting. Um, but uh, since that time, even more chaos has hit the uh, arena. Um, so Francis, why don't you tell us a little bit about what was the next domino to fall after Terra Luna and how it was connected um, and, and how you see very quickly like the progression uh, from that to where we are today? Well, there have actually been several collapses. Um, so there was Babel Finance, that um, got it got itself in some, into some difficulties. There was Celsius, which you've already mentioned, which suspended um, the withdrawals very shortly after the Terra Luna collapse, even though it said it got its funds out of Luna, but uh, then suspended redemptions, which is a bit weird. Um, but perhaps most importantly, there was the hedge funds, hedge fund Three Arrows Capital, 3AC as everyone called it, which collapsed into bankruptcy. It went into compulsory liquidation in the British Virgin Islands, where it is headquarters, and it's also in Chapter 15 bankruptcy in the United States. So that's a foreign firm with assets in the United States. Um, and um, interestingly, after it declared bankruptcy, it moved some assets to KuCoin, um, Q, no. how do you spell that? I've missed this entire story. Q, Q as in a Q. Hey, you. Hey, you. Coin. Which is an exchange. It's an exchange, yeah. So it moved some assets, quite a, some stable coins. So I think USDT and maybe something else as well into this um, wallet on QCoin, um, which is an, a, a, a wallet which apparently isn't 
anything to do with 3AC, which is a bit weird, so we don't know who it belongs to. And the founders um, then did a runner. They disappeared. Nobody knows where they are. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. That's so what I would do if I were running their business. Like, you know, where are these people? Where have they gone? A bit like Shades of Quadriga, actually, if you remember that one, when when um, things went missing and people went missing. And in that case, there was even a death. Yes. Well, minus, yeah, it's Quadrigax minus the uh, Crohn's disease. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, the, yeah, the mysterious Indian death. Yeah. So, uh, so now we have two uh, founders of uh, Three Arrows Capital on the run. Um, and they've just popped up again today. Yesterday, uh -huh. uh, they're, 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 there was an urgent application to a U.S. court to freeze their assets to stop them moving any more of them. Um, and today they popped up on Twitter um, complaining about the, the injunction preventing them, them, them moving their assets and furthermore, accusing liquidators of negligence for failing to buy snake tokens. What is snake One tokens? Yeah. Well, this seems to be to do with um, Starkware. Um, they, they're claiming that they had some kind of agreement with Starkware that they could buy their tokens or something like that, and the liquidators have failed to exercise that option, which is a bit mysterious as um, Snake Token's price fell off a cliff <laughs> at around about the 7th of July. It's a good, it's a good buy now. I think the uh, liquidators might have might have actually saved them. <laughs> saved the lower, the lower it goes, the, the better buy it is, right? Well, it like might Doge, be that. Doge, all-time best buy. The dip, but, you know, it's not the liquidators' job to buy the dip, is it? It's the liquidators' job <laughs> to, to, to preserve value. It's a, I mean, it's it's interesting because Three Arrows Capital has been viewed, at least in this pump, as like one of the very legitimate uh, sort of mm -hmm. entities. And... Uh, the the fall of Three Arrows Capital to me is is very funny. That's the, that's the best word I can use to describe. Before it. before we get into the three the the fall, what what was Three Arrows like? What was it supposed to be? It was a, it was a investment firm, right? That's yeah. how you would describe it. Like, what is the polite traditional finance way of describing it? It always seems to be described as a hedge fund, although from what mm -hmm. I've seen this activity, there wasn't a great deal of hedging going on. Um, <laughs> but but in the sense that it is um, uh, lever a, a leveraged fund. Um, and it was operating in the world of DeFi or just generally? Uh, no, uh, specifically crypto DeFi. Do Not just DeFi, to be fair. Francis, as you criticize the space, do you ever feel like you're just criticizing like four-year-olds. <laughs> Is there like legitimate financial activity you see going on in this space that like you're like, oh, that's some sophisticated stuff right there. I'm really not seeing a great deal. Well, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of stuff that people think is sophisticated, and I look at it and think, you know, we've seen this before. I'm a big Bitcoiner. I like Bitcoin. I think it's pretty cool. But but I, I I also find the whole space hilarious. I mean, like our people are the dumbest people. Like we had, a, I mean, like I think your your the 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 take the Francis Coppola takedown that I admired most was your your entire takedown of safety in the Moose's uh, book on the history of money. What's that called again? 
Oh, that was the Bitcoin standard, wasn't it? The Bitcoin and, standard, the worst. Yeah, somebody ever sent me a review copy, so I reviewed it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but it is. It is. It is interesting. Life, back. <laughs> it is interesting to me that like this entire space, particularly this this cycle with the, the pumps, and I think cycle is a dumb word to describe these rises in value, but I'll call it a cycle anyways. But like this cycle, the the it, just because it's like the moon phases of Bitcoin. In this cycle, the big thing has seemed to be the presence and entrance of absolute inanity with and, and what that which is the word we're using to describe this inanity is decentralized finance. Hmm. And it's interesting to me that these these guys like Three Arrows Capital, these these companies that are very like sort of cast themselves as legit, like really legitimate uh, people that investors that have gained credibility over the years like Mike Novogratz and his his pals have all been like taken taken in by this very obvious, very obviously inane set of crap. What's going on there? I think there's a fair amount of, of wanting something to be legitimate, a, a legitimate way of doing finance differently. Um, I mean, that has been a driving force behind crypto from the start is let's do it differently. Let's make this thing better. Um, and decentralization has been this kind of we can do it better. We don't have to rely on trusted middlemen who can badly let us down, as happened in 2008. But what bothers me is the way that every every time crypto tries to do something differently and better, it ends up repeating something that traditional finance has done before, but without the safeguards that traditional finance put in to stop it happening again. So I, we're having a little bit of debate, bit of a de debate at the moment about whether Terra Luna was Bear Stearns' moment and um, 3AC is the equivalent of Fall of Lehman, Lehman AIG. Um, I think it's actually a little bit more like 1907. I think it's more like 1996-ish. Um, yeah, I could see Al that. But, Alba but Albania. Hear me, out on, hear, me out, hear me out on 1907 because... Okay. This is really interesting because let's in, go in, back. Let, let's go back to 1907. What was the mood like? And what was happening in 1907? It was Belle Epoque. Over. Horse carriages were horse carriages. It was the failure of a trust company called the Knickerbocker Trust. Oh, I, I have a pair of Knickerbockers. The caprice um, of the men caused domino-like effects throughout the financial system. And interesting is they were the equivalent of flash loans. A flash loan now. You know, in crypto is um, a loan that must be um, repaid within a single block, right? Um, but the equivalent at the time was a loan that had to be repaid within a single day because, you know, they were doing everything by horse and cart, right? And they had these flash loans. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I, I, the flash loan is fantastically, like, to me, it is like they've innovated front running in the most, it, well, I think I said something on Twitter the other day. The the Anna, I've got to find it. You keep keep going. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so um, they had um, these uh, uh, the, flash what? loans. That's it. Settlement so, yeah. failure as a service. Was, That's what I yeah. called it. Yeah. So there were it, essentially the whole the whole space was highly leveraged, and there were these trust companies huh. that weren't banks, didn't have. Um, it didn't have the kind of they, they didn't have. I mean, this was in America. They didn't have a central bank at the time. We'll come on to that because this is this is why I think it's the nineteen the nineteen oh seven moment. Um, but they kind of didn't have the regulations and support that banks did have at the time. These trust How? companies 
weren't banks and yet how, they were behaving like banks how leveraged were they because like i mean it's a different time like for me it's difficult to compare anything happening today i think with like a hundred year ago finance because we have developed so much in finance uh compared to what they had then so like, well, how leveraged were they i don't think we have i think it, it, leverage is leverage is leverage and it, we have periods in excuse me a minute Excuse me a minute, I want to shut that pause. Answer it. No, no, I don't need to. <laughs> oh, this is a bill caller. The uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. This um, is this is Jay Powell. We would like to know what <laughs> <laughs> if it's if it's um if it's three ACs lawyers, I really don't want to speak to them. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're watching right now. Uh, absolutely, after what I said on Twitter, yeah, <laughs> sure, and boy, <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, um, so they had these things, things that were like banks and doing bank like things, but at much higher leverage and with much higher interest rates from trust companies, and they were called trust companies, but there wasn't a great deal of trust really, they weren't really terribly trustworthy, um, and um, so the, the whole thing fell apart. And um, Jay, John Pierpoint Morgan. Who's he? Who's he that? He was, <laughs> at the time, the, the um, head of one of the largest banks in America, known as J.P. Morgan. J.P. Oh. Morgan. <laughs> he got together with a group of other bankers to essentially bail out the system. Um, he's do he did what Sam Bankman-Fried is now trying to do with crypto. Um, and that's why I think it's the 1907 moment, because by, Sam Bankman-Fried basically is saying, I can bail out all of this, in much the same way as JP Morgan at the time was saying, I can bail out this, except that JP Morgan got his friends to help him. But I think Sam Bankman-Fried is doing that. The, some of the better capitalized exchanges are getting to, and, and Wales are getting together to, to, to bail this out. But what they ended up doing was creating a central bank because the creation of the Fed in 1913 followed on from this financial crisis in 1907. Huh. Um, and so, and it, you, where we've seemed to have reached in crypto at the moment is the recognition for the, the of a need for some kind of lender of last resort, dealer of last resort, liquidity provider of last resort in the crypto space. Do you think that's what happens then? Is that there is a like, or just is Sam Bankman Free just going to be like, that's me? It, it, it's essentially what he's saying. That's me. I have enough money to bail all this out. I've got two billion dollars. But he's also he's out. also four years old. So like, <laughs> well, I, I don't this know is, <laughs> this troubles me somewhat because I think he has a somewhat um, underwhelming Juvenile. view of how the space actually needs. <laughs> I suspect that he might actually run out. I, I think I think you're actually right. I mean, like it's it's interesting. I've been in my own portfolio doing like this swing strategy where like I'm just kind of taking advantage of the volatility. And with these like dips, I run out of money, Francis. Yeah. It, like you like Bitcoin is so volatile. It, it is difficult for me to understand how a uh, how you can have someone with what I don't know what he's got, 25 billion, something like that. That's not enough. That doesn't sound like enough to me. Mm. Yeah, it's not because um, if think about he what needs ten trillion dollars to like yeah, make think sure about what the whole the whole space is supposed yeah. to be worth. 
there is not enough money dollars in that space to bail all of it out there just isn't so it's just a question of whether you whether what some bank retreat is doing is to provide enough money into the space to restore confidence so that people stop trying to fly to the dollar which is what they're doing which is what's bringing down all these things just why celsius has stopped redemptions that doesn't have any dollars this is actually what had happened to, to voyager they don't have any dollars they can't allow they can't get any dollars they can't allow anybody to withdraw that's what's going on so you've got like got systemic runs on the whole space flight to the dollar i, I see this on it's, it is interesting it is a flight to the dollar but i see this all the time on reddit or other places like give me my money let me withdraw those assholes why do they stop withdrawals and and i i try to i, I try to like be very delicate They're like they stop withdrawals because there's no money there <laughs> it's, it's you're trying to get water from an empty well there's nothing to get. I, love, I love the people who think it's some sort of technology problem and they're like oh the interface is broken again or the user experience is so bad i'm like no no <laughs> it's not the system down for maintenance thing that yes, exactly. the that of a bank closing its doors <laughs> yeah that but that you know that traditional banks are definitely going to pick up on that and do the same thing so i mean that's the funny yeah. thing like because in 2008 remember like this was before the total proliferation of internet banking. So people were still, you know, you had telephone banking, you had, um, you definitely had online banking, but there was still a sort of expectation that it might take two days to get your money, right? Um, and so people, people literally had to go to the bank to demand intraday liquidity. Um, and I don't, I, I think the system hasn't really uh, appreciated how, how dangerous this whole like instant like there is a flip side to the instant payment side of it oh it's great but when 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 the merry-go-round sort of stops and there's no cash whatever yeah it's very interesting in that sense on jp morgan what is also interesting um and by the way i'm sorry for the noises behind but it's sweltering in london and i have to have the windows open so there are buses i'm afraid um on jp morgan what's interesting is that now even what like so that was 1907 now we're in 2022 and uh, it's still JP Morgan that is the de facto now second but last resort uh, yeah. in the liquidity game. Nothing has changed. <laughs> yes, I, it was very interesting, actually. I, um, back in 2019, in, in September 2019, when there were the repo market problems, and I was looking at the causes of that, sort of following mm -hmm. on what Randall Quarles was looking at. And we concluded that it was basically because four big banks, of which JP Morgan was the number one and biggest so we're back to the same group of banks again that go back to 1907 um were withholding liquidity from the market because they ha were having sudden big demands for payments um for um tax payments for uh, and also to buy it because they are broker dealers so to buy treasuries because it was a the, the uh, congress had lifted the debt limit and so there's a sudden inc huge increase in, in treasuries issuance. And they had to absorb all of that. It was draining their reserves. So they hung on to their liquidity to the market and the repo market blew up. And so the Fed had to step in as the dealer of last resort, the, provide, the liquidity provider of, of last resort in that market. Because in the end, banks like JP Morgan can run out of money and they can and do withhold liquidity if they think they're going to need it themselves. Francis, are we using the the the, la the bank of last resort uh, for all things rather often these days? 
well, maybe we are. Um, <laughs> no, the two thousands again with the retail market. The last and, decade or more. Yeah. We, yeah. you know, this kind of is the golden age of central banks that we, we've been in for the, really since the financial crisis. And, and crypto, Bitcoin, was a, a reaction to that. And yet, in many respects, it's been speed running the history of finance. Um, oh, yeah. Well, repeating I, 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 a lot of the same kind of crises, mistakes and crises and so forth that led to the creation. under the sun, as they say. Absolutely. So when Bitcoiners say that we're in 1993... Uh, you know, internet oh, or something wrong. like that. What what you really what you're asserting is that we're in 1907. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I, I think that's a very good case. I think that is a very. Huh. I, I'm I'm convinced. I think that makes sense. It, it, there are these weird corollaries in crypto that seem to crop up every cycle, and uh, and this is a, that's an interesting one, Francis. I uh, that that's that's an interesting one. Maybe. So is it like you know a his historical lucky dip? Like it just this this week we're gonna like be 1907. <laughs> like like, like this is like, like 1993. <laughs> no, in three years we'll be in like 1945. You know, uh, having run the entirety of uh, the like this is the this is our Great Depression right now. We're in 1920. No, you can say you still if if I'm right about 1907, you might still have a 1929 to come. Well, I'm but, saying that it's right now. That's now. But, that's why I think one of the unintended sort of like if if I had to like project some sort of useful utility on on crypto, I have and I've said this before, it is that it is an exercise in in financial education because um, all these people who are into crypto uh, wouldn't necessarily go and have a finance degree or whatever, um, but it forces you to learn and and actually a lot of people then become self taught and there's always a new generation of people. Who then, even within crypto, there is now already a generation cycle where those who were around like 10, maybe eight years ago, seven years ago, are already having to inform the new generation that they've learned things, you know. So that sort of educational role that crypto serves, I think, is quite fascinating. But it would be better if it was like in a in a virtual reality sandbox and and totally not into, you know, so it could it, everyone could go there, have a go make all the mistakes like a virtual reality like like a flight simulator yeah before you're let loose on the real world of invent it, you know, it kind of is it kind of is a virtual reality sandbox I, I, was gonna say that. Yeah, that I think it is it's it's kind of it is kind of cut off from yeah. you know you haven't got the systemic contagion um over in spillovers into the real economy really that you had in in say 2008 or even in 1907, actually, because it was disastrous for the American economy. Yeah. Um, you haven't got that. It is actually cut off, pretty much cut off and separate from it. I know there are these like <laughs> tethers <laughs> to the real economy, but um, and I know I, that I people, the good language to the real economy is maybe like the listings, like of Coinbase and my, you know, MicroStrategy. Yeah, and but, yes, but Isabella, here's the thing, and 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 Francis, correct me if I'm wrong. But what's really in, like think about this. Celsius is how big? Um, not sure offhand. I'll look it up. Tens of billions, I imagine. Celsius. Luna was Luna was how big? Eighty billion. Yeah, but it was it wasn't. I think we have to be. Celsius had three point three billion in okay, assets so, under management. So three point three billion, eighty billion, like. The thing is, these are bigger than like the Madoff 
the Madoff Ponzi, some of them, and many yeah. of them are at least comparable. And if you remember Madoff, I mean, like Madoff had like these knock on effects, a good example being like uh, Donald Trump had to lower the fees at Mar-a-Lago. No. Yeah. So there was this giant scandal during the Trump administration that when he became president, he raised fees at Mar-a-Lago like from I think it was like 75 or 100 to 150 or something like that. It was uh, it was no. a big raise. But what they didn't tell you is that he was just raising them back to pre-Madoff levels. Because when Madoff happened, he lost a ton of members. So he couldn't get members for many years because they were all affected by the Madoff scandal. So there were these giant knock-on effects. What's different actually, about crypto? Sorry. Oh, I, I just go. wanted to say that the, 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 par the parallel with that is also that Madoff targeted sort of affinity groups and, and specific sort of high, you know, high net worths. It was well, you're, you're, making, you're about to make my point. Oh. The thing about crypto is that's really interesting is that people become high net worth in crypto, endogenous to crypto. So like if I take all my money and I put it into Terra Luna and then I become worth a hundred million dollars off of the $10,000 that I put in three months ago, like I only like that's I'm, I'm a hundred millionaire, but I'm only a hundred millionaire for three months. And it's not like, it's not like the economy is worse off by like, putting me back at 10k right exactly. so it really is very much or maybe maybe even zero but like i've, I've lost ten thousand dollars and so that's that's kind of the history of like this whole space is that there aren't a lot of people you know there's there's 10 guys who came here rich and then got poor because they're stupid um me being among them i'm very poor right now and then there's uh there's uh, most no, i'm kidding most of us though came here poor uh got rich and then got poor again and that's a very like different. I think that's the knock-on effects of that are very different than they are if you go to a bunch of like people with generational wealth, three hundred million dollars, two billion dollars, and then turn them into like thousandaires. So you're saying easy come, easy go. Well, it's not easy come, easy go for the people, but it's easy come, easy go for the economy, right? Because it is like I think that's the isolation of of this going on. Because like the 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 hundred million dollar person, the guy who put a you know ten thousand dollars in and turned it into a hundred million or fifty million or ten million, he hasn't even had time to pull that out and spend it. There's no velocity there. There's literally nothing that can affect real dollars, right? Real like inflation, nothing. It's just a guy who now has ten million dollars in paper value. And then it goes back down to $500 or $10,000 or 15000 But he hasn't done much. There's nothing he's done to actually affect the economy. And so losing that money, the only thing that does is it completely destroys him as an individual. Yes. Um, but that's it. It doesn't have any knock-on effects anywhere. Nobody really I, lost I think, any money. I think that's right. That that there are individual individuals who have been badly hurt by the current crypto crash. They're Emotionally. More than anything, no, some, some people who've been financially, but financially badly hurt, and that's because actually, in this latest round of crypto enthusiasm, um, people have leveraged themselves, and so we've got people who have um, bought into the crypto bubble using borrowed money. On that does happen every time, though. That's every always what brings down these markets. Every yeah. so single those people, time. people who've done what Michael Saylor told them to do and mortgage their houses to buy Bitcoin, that kind of thing. Um, that that did he say that? Did he, did he say that? Yes, yes, he actually said it. Um, That's why I did it. I'm going to go Joe Rogan style. I'm going to fact check whilst mm. we go on. Not to, not that I don't trust you, Francis, but just to add a authority. If he, to what if you're he said it, can you download the video and and uh, we play it here? Because that that's really 
I, okay, Francis, I, I've been in Bitcoin for many years and I was, uh, you know, many, many years. I'm an, I'm an old man here, uh, despite being a child. And, it, you know, it's interesting to me, this, this crypto cycle was very different than the rest. And it was because all the new people had been here now for somewhat of a substantial amount of time, but they hadn't experienced the exuberance and the depression that comes with every single one of these. Like they go up and then it goes way down. And like, you know, there were there were there were Bitcoin uh, fanboys who were saying that this was the ever pump, uh, as I would brand it. Uh, we we're all waiting. You know, it's I'm, we're all in crypto like uh, purgatory waiting for the ever pump where uh, we take over the world and all the economies fall around us as we sit atop our ivory tower. Like that's that's the libertarian dream of the world. Um, we're all waiting for the ever pump. So like we'll be in these rooms, we'll be in these places and we'll get these like 65 year olds who come in and go, I'm I'm just thinking about cashing out my Roth IRA and my retirement funds and putting it all into Bitcoin. What do you guys think? And like crypto fanboys will jump on it and be like, yeah, do it. Go. Yeah. All in. And I'm just amazed because like that, that seems to me to be like, for me, the, the scariest thing, like if you're young, asymmetric risk yeah, seems like a really, a really yeah. decent idea. If you're, if you're old, if you've no no time to make your losses back, it's a really really bad strategy. Yeah, I mean, so so, I guess I haven't gotten to the question. I, I didn't think of one when I started, but I'm thinking of one now. Uh, when people like Michael Saylor, I think, who occupy a very interesting uh, sort of mind space, like they're they're these guys who've gained credibility through like owning a public company, whatever. Uh, when they tell people to do this, like, what do you? Do you think that that risks contagion into like real into the real world? Yes. And, and I have a follow-on question after that. So, yes, it clearly does because if people have taken out real-world loans, if they have, if a lot of people have mortgaged their houses um, to buy Bitcoin and then suffer major collapses, then you've got a lot of underwater people, a lot of people defaulting on their mortgages, um, handing out the keys and so forth, and that could bring bring about a housing market crash and housing market crashes in the US economy and indeed in the UK economy are disastrous things as we know so that we are beginning to see those kind of ties to the real economy and it is worrying um, I'm hoping that not too many people will have mortgaged their homes to buy Bitcoin so my, my knock very much an aggregate effect that my knock on question like a lot of a lot of what happens here seems to be getting like in crypto in bitcoin and in like the shitcoin space it seems to be getting reflected in like the real world among retail investors like with robin hood the gme yeah. christ or the gme rise amc all of the like meme stocks um i i get the sense that gen z and millennials who are the ones i think largely trading this stuff are getting to this point of like financial despondency that they're going to do something like i don't know so they're going to start taking out credit cards and like leveraging them to the hilt and they're just not paying them back. It, it, like if, if something like that happens, uh, I, I, instead of cord cutters, I've, I've been talking about card cutters. What do you think happens in the real world economy? If like an entire generation starts sort of realizing that uh, they can do that, that kind of thing with like little consequence other than like credit score. Um, I guess if the entire generation did it, then we would be in financial crisis territory. Because, you know, that's a whole load of people defaulting on their debts. Um, whether a whole generation would do that, I don't know. I, I don't think that the um, younger end of millennials generation Z, as we call them, <laughs> um, 
and, I, and obviously some of them are involved in crypto and they're more comfortable with it. They talk about it more readily than it's been, it's been, it existed their whole lives, you know? Yeah, they absolutely are familiar with it, but that doesn't mean all of them invested in it. And it also doesn't mean that all of them are leverage, leveraging themselves to invest in it either. I mean, you know, even within a single generation, you'll get people as a spectrum from people who will take insane and stupid risks to people who are really very conservative. So and risk averse. So I, I wouldn't want to bet on the whole generation doing that. Hang on. I found I found the clip. Nice. And you can borrow money at two percent interest or three percent interest. And you can buy something of tangible value that is not being debased or inflated away. It's probably a wise idea. If you bought a if you buy a house and you pay two and a half percent mortgage on the house and if the house is going up in value 25 percent a year the time to buy the house is not next year it's last year right so and, and the same is true if you if you had bought if you if you borrowed money at two and a half percent interest a year ago and bought the s p index it went up 37 percent so the the generic observation is when you can borrow money that is not marked to market for long durations for next to nothing, if you have a use of proceeds that you're confident in, then it's a good idea. Borrowing money at 2% interest to buy something that, that uh, is going to go up in value, anything north of 5% is uh, arbitrage. So I would say in general, it's a, it seems wise to me to hold tangible assets and let them appreciate in value as the money printer goes burr and not pay off your mortgage. I mean, the title of the thing, it says mortgage your house and buy Bitcoin. You might say it more specifically later on, but that's kind of the logic he was using. Well, he's I mean, he's not he's not wrong. Uh, the problem the problem is that you can never guarantee that things go up. It's I mean, it's really simple. Like I, this, this idea that, that we are owed a rising Bitcoin or a rising anything, a right. I mean, we, we've, we've made the mistake a million times, right? Like Bitcoin can go down, Bitcoin can go up. Housing markets can go down, housing markets can go up. And, um, it just seems, it just seems like really, really dumb to me to make a bet as if you know what the future is. People get, people got so caught up in the exuberance, this, this cycle. I, I've never, I haven't seen that quite like it was this time around. I have because it was like this before 2008 and it oh, was with with houses you mean yeah absolutely yeah yeah I, i'm sure that's true. like this in the uk uh prior to 1990 as well with houses exactly really but also yes. that it also reminds me of that harry enfield loads of money era Rose, yes it, very much so yeah that that's the yuppies when, when there was a big bang do you know about the big bang josh yeah mm -hmm. uh, the, the entire universe started as a single <laughs> There was that Big Bang, but there was also what became known as the Big Bang, which was Thatcher's famous deregulation of the city. Um, and that spawned the whole kind of like UK as this financial, well, UK was always a financial hub, but it really kind of injected this sort of uh, yuppie-esque uh, mentality. It was very American psycho, right? So um, this was the era where you know, people were just, it was, it reminded me actually, you're right, Francis, it was very, there was an echo of it again in the pre-2008 era where all the bankers were buying like lav 
Lamborghinis or whatever. And then there's always a Lamborghini somewhere in, in the equation. Um, and yeah, so that, 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 it, it, again, it was deregulation that spawned the original one. Um, it, yes. it's, it's interesting for me as like an old Bitcoiner. Uh, to, to have oh, like, yeah. I mean, Dick, I you know, I have a canes, uh, but like, I just, just buy you a Zimmer frame. <laughs> I've just, I've just seen, I've just seen this so many times now. It really is, I'm like underwhelmed. Like, I, I remember I was talking to a friend and he was saying, he's like, We're, you know, I think this time is, is different. Uh, you know, this we're, we're going to like, we're gonna, we're gonna, everyone's gonna be surprised. We're gonna go to 90,000, 120, and then 200, and everyone's gonna look at it and go, like, what's going on? I missed it. Oh my God. And I was like, I said to him, I go, well, maybe, but I said, Bitcoin tends to crash and it just goes down and just down, down, down. And then, and then it sits there for a few years and then it goes up and then it goes down and it goes way, way down. And it like, it, it, it creates new lows or new highs um, and new low highs or whatever people say, which I, we go through these kind of cycles in the real economy as well. And I, I think it's all, all psychological. We 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 have like a, a mindset that kind of says the money will never run out. And so we can have a massive party and the money will never run out. And then we have a big crash and go, oh, oops, the money's all gone. And so we'd better tighten our belts and belts and sit tight. And and, and we, we actually go through these cycles, not just in crypto, but in, in, the, in finance, uh, in finance generally, we go through these, it's almost bipolar from massive enthusiasm to black depression. Is the, is this experience what causes old money to buy Toyota Corollas? <laughs> it is actually, because I, when I was living in Geneva, which is like the center of old money, um, I always found it very interesting that the old Swiss money, they all drove really boring cars. It was very, very. I'm tip. at that stage as well this year, you know, like I, I did, I did my, I did my fancy car thing. I, I, you know, I got a Tesla. I was, you know, I come from, I'm a poor kid who lived on a Christian commune and I, you know, got some money and I was like, I'm going to buy an $80,000 car. And I did it. And I have like a nice Volvo. And then I said to my wife the other day, I was like, I'm buying, I'm buying a 2002 Toyota Corolla for the next thing. I'm not, I'm not doing this again. Like, I just, I don't need it. Like it's, it's just really, I, I, I realizing that like these cycles have uh, given me the ability to try uh, to try some things that I couldn't afford when I was younger or my family couldn't afford and just realizing the, the vapidity in a lot of that decision. And, and it's really like, I, I look at it and I, would, I just wonder, is this what causes old money? to do things like, you know, buy Mazdas, <laughs> like but avoid. It's very, I did a post many years ago, I called it the wealth evolution curve. And I was arguing basically that the kind of embarrassment de riche uh, situation actually, look, well, look at the like most, the richest people in the world tend to be like the really rich are often very miserly and they are the likes of Warren Buffett who famously wears Fruit of the Loom t-shirts which he owns or did own I can't remember um you know the IKEA guy whose name escapes me who like flies economy uh Elon Musk at some point was like I'm getting rid of all my assets and I, I mean, houses. You know, although I think he's I think he's still a bit exuberant, but in a different way. Um, but there is this sort of wealth evolution curve, and you'll notice that the the biggest spenders are the the economies that are newly enriched, you know. So whether it's China China or 
the Middle East was famous, you know, that so you know, from that perspective, Trump is 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 a is a counter that counterpoint because I guess he's kind of old money, but he spends like new money. <laughs> I don't know. But um Mar-a-Lago, I've not been to Josh, I, I, I feel we should point out to Francis. I that should I are, should go up there. You are the unofficial Florida correspondent for the blind. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> can, I can I tell people where you're based? You're yeah, 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 absolutely. It's not like they can't search it on the internet. <laughs> you're based in sunny Fort Lauderdale. Um, and I, I, I find it quite fascinating what's happening in Florida because it's becoming a new financial hub and center. Um, so you've got uh, I did that. moving to Miami. <laughs> yeah, people are coming to you. Well, it, it, I, I would I would say that in in some hilarious ways uh, we did have a big influence on it because that was when we did Bitcoin Uncensored back in the day. That was actually that was actually our stated goal was to make Florida attractive, particularly for the crypto crowd. Well, I think fr there is something to it, and um, Miami is now like well, it makes sense in in, in a world where suddenly work from home is normalized and. Why would you want to like hang out in gloomy Chicago? Well, Chicago's oh, yeah. not a hub, but like New but the, York. The, the move, the move did start earlier than that. Like it, it was pre pre COVID. A lot of people started, moving. but like I, I mean, the question I guess is whether uh, this this crypto stuff is so much different than traditional finance. I, other than I guess like Goldman Sachs and a few others are coming down, um, which I think is really interesting. I wonder if like the Nasdaq will leave uh, New York, or, like any of these companies, NYSE, uh, but. But other than that, like I, it's a little different down here than it is up there. Like I get the sense that a lot of the moving isn't so much corporate. It's not a corporate move. It's more like a move for executives. Right. So the bulk of operations is still in Drury, New York, or wherever. That, that's what I. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but like, there's not much that's changed here. I don't. Probably I don't not. think I've even like in New York, you know, I'd go out and I'd run into bankers every night here. I've never run into a banker. Like, so like, I just don't, I don't activity. there's more, the, perhaps they're more dispersed, but um, I, I do still think it's very interesting. And also when you mentioned the NASDAQ and the exchanges, because that is one of the reasons a lot of the new kind of high frequency trading uh, shops would be positioned near the exchanges, right? Because of co-location and, and trying to get ahead of, um, you know, the, the um the information uh flow right um but now as the exchanges are moving to cloud services that co-location thing is going to be um no longer a competitive edge so i, I don't think i don't think co-location has been a competitive edge for 15 years no 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 but it's going to be completely dead once they go to the cloud i mean it'll it, it doesn't the Nasdaq, as I understand, as I understand it, like the Nasdaq and the NYC, I thought they had servers like in the building, yeah. and all of the servers have exactly the same amount of cord run uh, from there to the floor. Am I wrong I, about that? I don't, that know, I don't know the details. I only what I read in Flash Boys, but <laughs> but basically, yeah. I mean, it's it was very, and you can use um, radio uh, transmission as an alternative, but that is more. Um, you, need, you, need, you, need, you need co location because actually these split split second differences in 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 transmission times in latency um, can can make the difference. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So is that, once is that still everyone true? has to be there. No, even if still, yeah, I think it's still true. You still got latency, and then well, there's less than there was. But right, but Francis, my understanding was that you could actually buy space on computers in 
in the building. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's cool. So that's like, where location is. Oh, I, I see. I see. Yeah. Sorry. I'm not You're right. That is co-location. You're correct. The bodies have to be there. <laughs> It's just yeah. you know you have to your your actual your your I, your. I understood Isabella to say co-location uh, using that word to describe where they were locating their offices. Like oh uh, no 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 as in co so co-location being the opportunity. You meant literal to... literal like server co-location like yes actual, yes literal okay. literal yeah. and and of and the alternative is using radio transmissions I think and but that is risky because of cloud cover or other environmental factors that can get in the way. Whereas, is that the whole thing with Starlink? Is that the whole purpose is to like reduce latency, particularly from the UK to the US? I'm not sure about that. I would I would have to guess. But what I what I do think is interesting is that like once, even though the arbitrages have been fairly kind of um, eroded away, you can't afford to not be co-located because that gives you a yeah. disadvantage. So um, you might not have an advantage from of being uh, co-located, but you, you have to be there, or else you lose you lose your, you know, you would lose your your any kind of like comparative relative, um, just you know, performing as well as your peers. But um, but when it goes to cloud, it'll be interesting. On on, but going back, let's go back to crypto because I am still interested in this Voyager cape and. Uh, Cape, Cape, Cape Crusade. Caper. Caper, Caper. Uh, is the word I'm looking for. Um, okay. so what was Voyager, and what, like, what, what, where in the kind of sequence of events did you know where did things start to kind of become clear that there was something wrong or untoward of what's going on there? Okay, Voyager's really a trading platform, um, but it was lending and it was taking deposits, and it had been increasingly marketing itself as a deposit taker um, and it's the type of marketing it was doing was attracting small players people who had small amounts of money um, couldn't afford to use it it was encouraging people to have their wages put into its accounts paying their mortgages from its accounts um, and then it was pooling their funds and lending to um, as it turns out capital well, yeah, as it turned out, not very many companies of whom one was 3AC. Um, it, 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 had, it, it turned out, and it's, and it's, well, actually, I say it turned out, but actually, if you'd actually looked at its accounts even before it failed, you could see how very concentrated its books were. Because in its March 31st filing, which came out in May, just after Luna went down, um, their analysis there showed they had like seven major counterparties, really. And they didn't name the counterparties, but you could quite see that this was an extremely concentrated order book. And, and they had all these thousands of retail customers, all of whom were being reassured that their funds were completely safe because it had these um, this relationship with a bank, Metropolitan Commercial Bank, and Metropolitan Commercial Bank is FTIC insured, so their funds were completely safe, weren't they? They, and, and they were sending out emails to this effect, weren't they? Like I saw a couple of emails from them. It was actually on their chat bot. It was extraordinary. They wrote a blog originally saying, oh, we've partnered with Metropolitan Politics Conversion Bank. This means that your funds will be completely safe um, if either the <laughs> bank gets into trouble. Well, that wasn't life starters. Um, but then they carried on saying it or implying it to actual customer service legal it's, terms it's so actually said correctly that um there was no protection in the event of voyager's failure only if the bank failed 
They did actually say that in their conversation. Hilarious. It's it's so to this. They carried on implying that uh, that customer in their marketing material that customers customer funds were completely safe, and even after they went down, their chatbot was still saying what was in their originally original blog, saying that um, that that their fund their funds were safe. (laughs) It's, it's really, really amazing to me. So now, FTIC is is investigating them yeah. because misrepresenting deposit insurance is is an offence in the US. Um, I so imagine. They, yeah. So they're now now the subject of an FTIC investigation. Unless you're Robin Hood. Yeah. So, another story. <laughs> no, so but, but that's, that's... now. Yeah. So where we are now is that Voyager has filed for bankruptcy. What a surprise. Um, and it's uh, put out a statement saying that um, the only way forward on this is very exposed to 3AC. The, the, the 3AC loan is, is, is like two thirds of its loan book. It's insane. Wow. It's a massive, a massive hole in its balance sheet. I worked out, I did some calculation, crunched the numbers a bit and worked out that they, that they had, um, it, it was 27% of their assets were the 3AC loan. Wow. And, and because 3AC is in compulsory liquidation in, in the British Virgin Islands and in Chapter 15 bankruptcy, and we don't know how much of 3AC's assets even exist, whether Voyager will see any of that money back again the is scam, questionable. The scam is so interesting here because, like, I've, I've never heard a company attempt to use the – like, like they, they, they put money into a bank and they said that we've partnered with that bank. Like I, my, my company is partnered with bank of America. It's a very weird to say that we, it's a very weird way to say that we have a bank account at that bank. And then, and then they told yeah, customers I, I that their bank account, you know, like Coca-Cola. Cause I drink, I, I drink, Coca-Cola. I, me and me and Coca-Cola, we have a partnership. Like it's like, but like, and then, and then, they explain to their customers that the bank works in a way that every one of their customers knows intuitively that is not how banks work. Like it is such in, in crypto, the, the hopium is incredible. People will like literally believe anything. It, it, I'm amazed. No, I, do, I do think they were actively misled. Um, though it's misled. They're misled in two ways. Well, three ways, really. Um, the first is that um, FDIC insurance does not cover um um, deposits in a broker in a brokerage. They're only they, they, it's only the bank itself that is covered. So for FTIC insurance to kick in at all in a circumstance like this, Metropolitan Commercial Bank would have to have failed. It it, it, <laughs> SIPC can do brokerage, right? Or no? Is that just like? Well, yes. If um, Voyager was actually part of the scheme, yes. If they were, if they were really like a legit thing, but I, I like because I, I don't know. Because they didn't want their products to be um, classed as securities. So they're not members of the scheme. So there's no <laughs> insurance. And FTIC insurance only applies to the funds that's in Metropolitan Commercial Bank, not in Voyager. Um, and Metropolitan Commercial Bank is still standing. In fact, the bank issued a statement to that effect saying we're still standing. So this insurance isn't going to pay out or words to that effect. Um because we were getting a lot on the Reddit chats of people saying, when is FTIC going to um, pay out? Um, and people were saying, I'm going to contact FTIC and ask when I'm going to get my money back. And, 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 and that, that's and such a misunderstanding of how FTIC works. Yeah. I, I don't think there is. 
I think I think what happened here was people chose to be scammed. Like this is the thing. Everyone knows that's not how FDIC works. You know it intuitively. When you hear a bank, when you hear a company make a claim like that, you know that it's BS. You know that that's not how it works. And you yet, would think so. And yet, they people really did seem to be genuinely convinced that FDIC would pay us. And I oh, have to say, having seen the company's marketing material, it does seem to have been intended to mislead. You know, I, I get I get that, but there's there's a there's a caveat emptor type situation here where like I think if someone comes to you and goes like our our water cures cancer, like it, I I I understand that some old <laughs> ladies well, okay. are gonna Yeah, they're like some people are gonna be like very convinced at this claim, but if someone explains to you that water does something that water just you intuitively know water doesn't do, and thousands and thousands of you are like, you know, going and buying this water. Like you've, you've chose in some ways you've chosen to be scammed. And I hate to say that, but like, that is the reality. Like, yeah, but Josh, not, not everyone is as, um, I don't know. There are gullible people. There is, a, I, I'm very torn on this because on one hand, my, I, you know, I have, I have family who have been, you know, you would say chose to be scammed in by just, you know, their, their core competency wasn't understanding financial markets. They made their money in different areas. And and then when, um, you know, they were sold some like specific, you know, very structured, complex products, they were told by their advisor that it was supposed to do this and that, and then it didn't. And they read the uh, terms and conditions, they would have known that. But I don't you know, think those people chose to be scammed. I think it's different. Like, it's very different when you end up in a, a complicated, like annuity structured product that your financial advisor has like told you does X, Y, and Z, but really he's getting a payout on the back. And like, that's a very different situation. Cause like you've trust, you've got a guy you trust and like, he's sitting there, but like you, these people are going to a, a guy whom they've never spoken to before and who's giving them an understanding of how money works that like beggars the imagination. Like there's just this massive, like, there's a magic administrative like function here that the government will just like pay you back your money if you lose it. Like that's just everyone intuitively knows that that is false. They know it. I hear what you're saying, but but I do just to argue in terms of like the endless you know potential for human stupidity. Was that famous quote that Einstein said? You know the one I mean. I, I assume. Anyway, um, I think. I, I, I think for what it's worth, that I think that FTK is massively misunderstood, actually. I think people don't yeah. understand deposit insurance. But aside from that, um, one thing that came across very clearly was that people who clearly weren't covered by FTK insurance at all, not even at arm's length, um, also thought they would be protected or bailed out or wouldn't lose the money or, or whatever. Um, and that brings me to the second part of this, because one of the things that people, in order to earn any interest on these accounts, when you put your dollars into them, you immediately had to exchange them for something else. You couldn't leave them in dollars. If you left them in dollars, you didn't earn in money. But your money was then, it was then supposedly in Metropolitan Commercial Bank and FTIC insured, but it didn't earn any, earn any interest. In order to earn the very high interest that they were promising, um, you had to exchange it for something else. So you would exchange it for USDC or USDT, some kind of stablecoin, and then you could trade crypto if you wanted, or you could just lend your stablecoins out for these very high returns, okay? That was roughly how it worked. Um, and the moment you did that, you weren't covered at all. Um, right. And yet, oh, yeah, USDC, that makes sense. And yet USDC was and is being marketed as equivalent to a dollar. And furthermore, they were running a debit card Visa pilots um, for um, Voyager account holders 
um, whereby people could put some money in and get a debit card. And the moment they did that, um, they got the debit card, all their money was converted into USDC. Some of those people probably think they've got dollars in their account. And just now, to be clear, USDC is the stable coin issued by Circle. Is that the one? Yes, that's right. Now, what's going to happen, what Roger says is going to happen now, is that um, holders of crypto on its platform, so that will include these USDC holders who might think they have dollars but don't, um, will have a haircut of some kind. We don't have big yet. Um, I think it was Jameson Lopes said he thought it would be around 30%. I think it would be a bit more. Um, and that's simply based upon the assumption that they're not going to get very much back from uh, 3AC. Um, and um, they're going to be bailed in in much the same way if you cast your mic back to 26. From, from where? Where's well, that money coming from? Well, if I can talk you through, um, it's this out of the Bitfinex playbook. If you cast your back to, back, mind back to 2016 when Bitfinex got hacked and it imposed a haircut on its depositors to to recover its losses. So it, it did coercive debt, debt, debt for equity exchange. So um, the, the crypto debt um, would be exchanged for new shares and for existing Voyager tokens. And um, they will and um, crypto holders will also have the right, as they do as creditors, to um, a share in the proceeds of whatever they manage to get back from TAC plus any any existing assets that they have. So um, they're basically so that's they're basically going to lose a proportion of their existing valuable crypto and have it exchanged for shares and voyage tokens, which initially at any rate will be worthless. Um so you ended up working out for Bitfinex, didn't it? It did, because what Bitfinex did was it actually exchanged for tokens, not even for shares. I mean, Voyager is at least exchanged, partially exchanging for shares, although as it's bankrupt, those will be pretty worthless as well. But I mean, if it's going into administration, um, gets tidied up, resolved, restructured, whatever, and goes in, uh, re-emerges as a going concern, then its shares will eventually be worth something. Um, and with its tokens, um, what they'll need to do is do what Bitfinex did and actively make a market in them. Do we know who um, the people who, who's behind Voyager? Who is it, it, like it, it, in terms of the structure and and the people and and um, uh, executives there? I mean, is, are there? A, what's the transparency on that? Um, oh, <laughs> good question. Um, they it, it's registered in as a as a it's registered in Toronto. I mean, it's, it well, it's and it, it, uh, trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Um, so there are CDI listings. Shady Toronto. Wait, wait. Yes. It was listed. <laughs> yes, it's, list, it's, a, it's a listed company. Oh, my um, um, So there are CDI listings. So you can actually look at its financials, which I've done, which is uh, um, which is how I've managed to work out how much how much <laughs> owed them um, and how concentrated their loan book was. Um, it's interesting that the SEC has been so reluctant to allow a lot of this like financial innovation stuff coming into the like U.S. markets, but Canada has been like we're fine with it. Yeah, and, like this is it's very it's really interesting because like we can't even get an ETF here in the U.S. Canada's got like three. I <laughs> know. Oh, I get the SEC turned grayscale down, haven't they? They're trying. Yeah, they keep. They're like, no, no. I know you're not having a spot Bitcoin ETF. Yeah, and Canada's, Canada's like, yeah, do it. Just come on, no problem, no problem. It's really interesting to me. Yeah. So, so behind Voyager are very tradfi. So you've got Steve yeah. Ehrlich, who is 
previously um, a retail broker-dealer where he was founded something called Lightspeed Financial. Previously, he was CEO of E-Trade Professional Trading. And then you've got someone called Philip Itan, and he was his, he was a telecom M&A analyst at Morgan Stanley and managed a distress, distressed debt for portfolio. He managed well, he probably, a distressed he probably debt just, portfolio he probably just got in. capital. <laughs> Uh, um, and then, and was an, he was also an early investor in Uber, which is interesting given uh, Uber's fall from grace as well. Um, and then last, that? there's someone called Ga Gaspar de Druzzi, who was um, his. He started his career as, career as an advisor to Warner Music, um, and then in partnership with BNY, he. He founded Capital, an online broker built in partnership with BNY Mellon and a IH, IHS Market. So, yeah, so these are kind of like, oh, investing API, blah, blah, blah. Trade, uh, some, he also did something that Peter Thiel invested in. So, basically, these are very tradfi people coming in who should really have known better, no? Yeah, yeah, they absolutely should. It's ridiculous. I'm... I'm um, I don't, this is a, a, an ever confusion for me, but why is it that trad fires get here and make exactly the same mistake as retail? Like I watched retail come into Bitcoin. We retail started this whole market, right? And, and retail got in retail. It is excusable because that's not their professional competency. So yeah. yes, exactly. So retail comes in, retail comes in and they're like, I'm going to make all the mistakes and they do everything. They lose all their it's money. And I watch it and I'm like, oh, okay, well, yeah, that, but they're dumb because they're retail. Like, I don't, I didn't know this. There's like all, all sorts of ways that I had to learn to remanage my money in Bitcoin because like, oh, taxes exist. What? Whoops. Eww. You know, so like you have all these problems that you don't, you don't even think about, oh, what's a wash trade? You know, whatever it is. And, uh, <laughs> no, and so like, yeah. So, so then, so then, you know, what happens is all of a sudden, like the, the real investors show up and they do they they're really high and mighty when they get here, but they do exactly the same things. Yeah, why? There's been lots of commentary on those lines, actually, saying why are people who should know better making these mistakes? It's almost like they see crypto as somehow different. Because this, I was going to say, because this time is different, this and is it's different. a kind of mutual gaslighting that goes on, which makes you think, oh, well, maybe this time is different. Um, and that's why I've always been incredibly cynical. Uh, and like, you know, Francis will know, I've made one concession, which is that I do see the logic of there being Bitcoin out there as a sort of fail safe to keep the core system honest as well. I think that is the role that Bitcoin exclusively can um, provide to the market as a sort of, you know, uh, uh, some sort of vehicle that keeps the core system honest and is there as a release valve in the event that something bad does happen and we need to, we can't just go back to paper money. We have to compete, you know, that that's my, or, or, that's my or, your, or your country goes totalitarian and you need to exactly. get it out. Right? Like yeah, that's, 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 that's really the, the use of Bitcoin yeah. more than anything is like, uh Oh, I'm yeah. living in Venezuela suddenly. Whoopsies. Although, even then, Josh, I am I am still relatively skeptical because I still think that the core system is incredibly good at making you pay your taxes, Josh. You know. Oh, so but not the, the, ta the tax. It's not the tax argument. It's the like yeah. I need to flee China. Yeah, but even they're... then, like the, the 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 you know that was the beautiful kind of like vision of the early cypherpunks. But I think 
there's been so many concessions in the in the crypto bitcoin in the maximalists even in the maximalist circles where you've ended up with coinbase type things which are just you know giving up on all the sort of core non you know all the core censorship resistance stuff has been kind I, of i don't think that's i don't out. think that's true at all the, the, the censorship resistance stuff is absolutely at the core of this i mean like none of that has I been compromised so. given up at all I would hope so, but if you, but that's because you're smart. You, you, no, you no, know, it, it doesn't. It doesn't take anything. Like you're right, Isabella. Most people don't need the censorship resistance. This is this has yeah. been my, my point for many years. Most yeah. people don't need Bitcoin. The people that need Bitcoin, like this is many years ago uh, here in Florida, we had a conference and uh, the Darkcoin guys, which you know, hilarious scam, but the the Darkcoin guys did a, an event at a strip club, and I got a call. Like I talk a Forbes uh, a. I think it was Forbes journalist called me and was like, Hey, I want some commentary on this. What do you think about, you know, what these guys were doing in the disrespect to women that they were, you know, going to the strip club. And I, I was like, you realize that those, those strippers are the first people in Florida, like the first women in Florida to use this stuff. Right. Like they need Bitcoin. <laughs> they need it. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. the prostitutes down here need Bitcoin. The drug dealers need Bitcoin. The like neo Nazis and that that we hear about in the U.S. They need Bitcoin because they're getting their money taken so, from them by the FBI. Mean, do we think Hunter Biden is a user of Bitcoin? Hunter Biden definitely needs Bitcoin. <laughs> he has to have it in order to get his drugs. There's no finer drugs you can get than from the internet. And so, like, there you this, go. that's a big insight from this podcast. <laughs> that's right. You should not. <laughs> I'm safe. I'm safe in saying that because uh, was it Chuck Schumer a few years ago did like a whole thing. Where he was like trying to show people on the Silk Road how bad it was. He's like, you just go over here to the Tor browser, you download it, you open it up, you just go to this long domain, and then voila, there you are. You can purchase drugs. Isn't that bad? And then that was when Bitcoin went to thirty dollars <laughs> the first time. <laughs> but but yeah, no, there are people that need Bitcoin. They aren't you and me. And those people are going to use the censorship resistant features of Bitcoin. Most people keep their Bitcoin in Coinbase because it's a speculative asset for them. And they don't need the censorship resistant features, but there are people that do and they're all so, over the world. So I totally agree with, with, with that analysis. It's just, um, and, and you need the yin and the yang and, and it's hard to like have a free system without the bad in, in it. And I, I get all that, but what, you know, what I think is true um, regarding sort of naivety in the market is that that naivety extends into all sorts of areas. And I was at a, um, I was testifying on blockchain to the uh, Science and Technology Committee here in the UK, in the House of Commons Select Committee, uh, last week or the week before, and I can't remember now. And um, and what the funniest thing in that entire uh, experience was, and I, I don't want to like name and shame this MP because I I kind of feel like. I, it was like an innocent thing that she did, but she basically was sort of making a fly. She was making a comment, sort of saying, "Oh, you know, because obviously this is very risky. It's not like our fiat currency, which is all backed by gold." And I was like, "Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> you think fiat currency?" But it makes it is an important point. I don't want to put her on the spot because I don't. I I understand like division of labor. You can't be an expert in everything, and I don't blame her. But at the end of the day, she's an MP. She's going to be voting on impo important potential kind of financial implications. She was actually a Scottish SNP uh, MP, and I think that is even more interesting. If if that's what you know the the, the average understanding of how banking is 
I'm following all the English uh, acronyms here. So, Scottish oh, Member of stuff. Parliament. <laughs> I got so it. We have we have a devolved part, like partly devolved system in in the UK, right? So the Scottish MPs get to sit in our Parliament in London, but our English MPs can't sit in Scotland. But that's another story. And um, well, yeah, that's because you're colonizers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Scottish MPs are, um, you know, they have their own parties and, and she was from the Scottish National Party, um, which is a uh, kind of independent, Scot independent Scotland party. But the actual SMP. issue of... Scottish SMP. National Party. Yeah. Okay. yeah. It's the one nationalist party that is not stigmatised in the world, I think. <laughs> There's some Scott's very funny Tracy Ullman skits about it, actually. Um, they want to like take over Britain and put everything in uh, tartan. No, just... <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 by, by, the, by the way, uh, Isabella, in my family line, we are, are distantly related to Robert Burns. I really, I have no idea, but I've been told that by my aunt. So, but everyone is eventually like, Oh, you're related to Robert Burns, probably. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> what generation is he? I don't know. <laughs> it's like, just back there somewhere, you know. Yeah. My was, anyway, that, that is another story. We'll get to that on another. But Francis, I'd be very interested in, in what you think, because I think the Scottish independence thing is very interesting for crypto because there is now going to be an issue. Well, I don't know what the latest is. Have they agreed on a new referendum or what? Well, and they're in the process. As well, as this podcast. Yeah, I know Nicola Sturge, I think she can unilaterally declare, have a referendum and, and uh, yeah, okay. And, and Westminster is in turmoil and nobody's going to say no at the moment. <laughs> so, we don't have a, we don't really have a leader anymore, Josh, you know, so um, at, at the rate we're burning through uh, leaders, we might have to import some Americans. as the world has become internationalized i've i've really truly understood the value of education especially when in trying to understand english politics oh, like i feel like they should teach it because it is it is inscrutable to me i have like like you guys don't have like a voting day like the queen just kind of like we're voting now everybody it's time to vote you know like i, I don't know like it's very it's, it's weird to me like in america we're scheduled like november 5th yeah. Uh, every four yeah. years, but every two years, kind of also. But no, like, it's, it's whenever schedule. it's called. Yeah. <laughs> it's very nice. Very nice. We know when we're voting. Yes. So yeah. yeah, and and we and yes, and our prime minister gets elected by like less less than two hundred thousand people. Yeah, you can <laughs> totally game the system. It's very interesting because you could totally game it. But going yeah. back to Scotland and crypto, is that um, Scotland obviously uses sterling, which is. Uh, managed by the bank of england but a lot of people don't maybe in america know that scotland also has its own uh pound coins pound notes whatever issued no, by not coins yeah pound notes. pound notes is it notes they don't have it's coins. notes it's notes famously then the 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 bank scotland your the, colonizers don't even know what Scottish, you use yeah i do excuse me and then we went to coins but in yeah, Scotland, but Scotland didn't they're um, a bit behind they don't like the coinage they prefer the yeah. notes <laughs> so it's, anyway, also, it's also because the notes are produced by the banks right so basically uh, so it, it's, it's about the Scotland has its own tether system because Scottish huh. 
banks basically compete. There are three different banks, I think, now yeah. that issue Scottish pound notes. And de facto, they are like, they're like Teva, but backed by Sterling. <laughs> which am I, yeah. Am I, am I wrong that essentially served. netting was invented in Scotland? Yeah. Wasn't netting invented in Scotland? Uh, no idea. Am I wrong about this? Um, it's... Uh, it's 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 moderately interesting, Josh, that um, Scotland, Scottish banks, pound notes and pound notes and five pound notes and have you, are all 100% reserved. When I say 100% reserved, I mean they are 100% backed by actual physical cash. Yeah. Um, like in, 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 a, in a vault somewhere. There's a vault. In, a vault, and then, in the bank. They, of is, they issue beyond that. Yeah, that's why it's literally like Tether. It is Scotland uses a currency that is effectively a, 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 a parallel sterling, which is, um, and we accept their currency in England because it, it the, the, the peg has never been broken. And, and the, we've got such close relations with, with Scotland, like it would be weird not to accept their money. But in theory, uh, there is, it works on a peg. Now, if you have an independent Scotland, if Scotland decides to break away, there is the question of whether they will be able to maintain that peg. Well, first of all, they have to decide what to do. Like, are they going to stay on sterling or will they want to join the euro? Um, and that will take a while. Like, they can't just join the euro, right? But they could they could depeg from sterling. That's another option that they could that they could do. But the interesting complication is yes, all the uh, all the Scot Scottish uh, notes are in theory backed by sterling, but one of the main banks is also owned by the by the by the UK taxpayer. So if they uh, well still yeah. I don't think it's majority owned, but it's still got a very sizable wedge. Yeah. Um, so the Scottish MP Isabella lives in a country <laughs> that has a currency backed in Great Brit Great Britain pounds. Yeah. Which she Not believes gold. to be backed in gold. Yes. Yes. Many iterations of, of uh, it's very funny, actually. <laughs> I, th I, I think it's a fascinating situation. It's massively underreported on because I, Scottish banking has always been, this is why I asked about the netting, because I think there's been a lot of, like, over the years, there's been a lot of, like, financial uh, innovation in places. You know, we have the Netherlands, well, they famously Scotland, like, these little islands and small nations tend to, like, for some reason, be like hubs of financial innovation. You're probably I don't know why. thinking of the infamous free banking era that occurred in Scotland, which actually Francis no doubt knows more about than me. But it was one of it's often cited as like the one example of where free banking was working perfectly and there was no uh it works in a country that's very small. But actually <laughs> I, I think that's it's a little more complicated even than that. Um yeah. because um when you actually look at how the these supposedly free banks worked in Scotland. They were not a system of banks all competing with each other. We had two big banks. We had RBS and um, Bank of Scotland and Clydesdale. And um, Ooh, horses. Uh, <laughs> um, RBS was centred on Edinburgh and Bank of Scotland was centred on Glasgow. And they pretty much carved up Scotland between them with Clydesdale getting a bit of the north and the islands and so it was actually organized geographically it was and those banks the three those three big banks issued the notes in those geographic regions and they had they were kind of like a flotilla of smaller banks for whom they acted as clearers so they acted like central banks in their own regions 
and that was not a competitive system. Yeah, yeah, no, the, the United States, like the era at all. The free banking era in the United States was significantly worse. Like it was very messy. Like, it, like all the libertarians talk about, like the wildcat banking. That they yeah, I know, and, and I, I, and I have arguments with George Selton about. about Do you? It's, it's. So, I feel like if you British free banking and yeah, yeah. If you want to go back to wildcat banking, I feel like the only, the only reasonable explanation I can, can, can think that is that you don't know the history of wildcat banking because it was a yeah. terribly bad idea. You know, like banks would locate themselves out in the backwaters where you couldn't, you literally could not redeem the notes. Especially in a that, big country like the US. That's essentially the problem. I mean, as I see it, if you're going to have free banking, you have to have something that anchors it. And historically, that's tended, that's always been some kind of commodity-based currency like gold. Um, so even in the era of Scottish free banking, they were all ultimately anchored to gold. So it's, it's actually interesting that your Scottish MP said that because historically, that is how Scottish free banking worked. Um, and and when even when... Um, they decided to peg, uh, to control inflation, actually, they decided to peg the Scottish notes to English notes and then um, um, 100%. English, the English currency at that time was, was anchored to gold. So there was this kind of layer upon layer. Um, now we don't have the gold layer there. Um, but the Scottish currency as it is now still depend is 100%, one, one for one pegged okay. to the English currency, um, and 100% reserved. It's like a currency board. Francis, what happened to, I mean, like, I know we have RBS still. What happened to Clydesdale? Oh, we have all three, actually. They're, they're all three there? So, yeah, so what happened? Why... Each of them is different. So Bank of Scotland um, belongs to Lloyd's. So it's part of an English bank and has been for quite it's a long time. Conspiracy. Um, well, um, it actually has been owned by an English bank for a very long time, because even before it was taken over by Lloyd's in the aftermath of the financial crisis, it had been take, previously taken over by Halifax, which was a building society that became a bank in, uh, after the big bang that we talked Freemasons. about. Right. Um, and so Halifax, Halifax was an English mortgage lender. Okay. and over Bank of Scotland. And then Halifax Bank of Scotland, as it became, then failed in the financial crisis and got um, taken over by Lloyd's. And then oh. Lloyd's failed and was national, part, partly nationalised. So what what, what caused the, the Scottish free banking era to kind of end and collapse? Uh, exactly what I what I said before, that um, it, it was... Just inflation problems? Forced, inflation problems. It was okay. forcibly brought to an end. Um, by the, um, it, 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 by, it, um, by forcibly being pegged to, to English, um, English notes in about 1840 something, I think. Oh. Um, so we still have Bank of Scotland, but it's part of Lloyd's. Isabel, are you trying to speak? We still have, we still have RBS. Um, RBS famously took over NatWest, which was a much bigger English bank back in about 1999. Um, and then built itself up into uh, by the, by 2008 the third biggest world bank in the world by assets and then spectacularly collapsed in the financial crisis it was the biggest bank to collapse in the financial R crisis rbs yes yeah. really i mean that's that's interesting i know that we have like uh rbs branches here in so yeah. far we have citizens bank yeah. in the us was, which i think was, was owned by rbs absolutely knows rbs pretty well because she hails oh, yeah. from from uh, from NatWest, right? 
I did indeed work for, excuse me, I'm just trying to get my charger because my, my battery's going to die. Um, yeah, I actually worked for NatWest and then latterly in for RBS just after the takeover of NatWest. So, so what, what did you say? What did you say about their the Citizens Bank? I, like, I, I only know tangential because like in the Northeast, we have Citizens Bank, which I understood to be an RBS uh, derivative, like U.S. owned, you know, RBS. Yeah. Well, RBS had um, subsidiaries, branches, offshoots everywhere, all over the place. That was a massive bank. Um, it famously took over ABN AMRO. And then that was actually the proximate cause of its failure was Avian Amaro was absolutely riddled with um, toxic RMBS and CDOs and stuff. It was peak, peak sort of exuberance, the ABN, uh, RBS merger. It's interesting yeah. for me, I'm realizing that I, I know what happened in the financial crisis here in the US, but we had, we are, we are so like egocentric. Yeah. I have no idea. I had no idea that RBS collapsed. Oh gosh, yes. And, no and idea. I and I bet you ninety-nine percent of Americans don't either. Don't, no, they've no <laughs> idea. And they don't when we when when I say that jet Bitcoin, I am convinced that Satoshi was in London. Because if you yeah. look at what's A lot on of the people are. and what and what that article, have you looked at the article? Yeah, headline is on the Genesis block. It's yeah. actually about about British banks. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually about the that. Chancellor bailing out RBS. Yes, that's what it's about. Saying considering another bailout for them because they still weren't lending, even though they'd already had two bailouts. He was considering a third one. To I, try and get I, them never, I never, I never put that together. That that, that, blow, that yeah. <laughs> like, like in in America we were so full, like we we know about like Lehman Brothers. Like for yeah. us, Lehman Brothers, and that's not even like an American. Oh, bank, Josh, we have to do we, a whole other episode where I sort this out because honestly. Yeah, but like British dimensions. This not only was there another like offshore thing. I would argue that the offshore stuff was the contagion that forced the U.S. banks to collapse. I honestly didn't even know that you guys had banks in the U.K. I thought that you guys stored my mind is being blown right now i just like i had no idea crisis actually started <laughs> earlier in Europe and the U.K. than it did in did in the U.S. It was a year earlier. It started with the, with the collapse of Northern Rock, and before that, German Germany's IKB. Um, so you know, we're not talking about quite. I don't even thing. know if I, I don't even know if I believe you to be honest, Francis. <laughs> I think that the financial crisis started here. Uh -uh. You know, no, no, you just I woke got up one morning. Just... George Bush was like, "We got to sell capitalism to keep capitalism." And that was the beginning. That was it. Nancy Pelosi no, was peeing her pants. Like that. It's it's quite a timeline, actually. And, and it, mm. it, it started in, in 2007. I but, feel ignorant. Um, I quit Neiman, this podcast. Neiman I... was like the, like the this kind of massive, massive disaster at the end of it. But it wasn't the start of it. It was actually the end. For us, that um, was the beginning. It's so interesting mm -hmm. that like it really felt like that was like, oh, wow, we're, we're melting down. What's going to happen? And then the, like, well, I, I think it like, would be worth... I think it'd be worth doing uh, an episode on it because my my hunch at the moment is, and I'd be interested to know what Francis thinks, um, and I also want to ask her about the Scottish pound. But um, the I kind of feel that we are now in the grips of another financial crisis, and I don't know. We're filming this in the week that euro dollar is reaching parity almost, and um, I'm I looking suspect at castles in France, by the way. 
castles in France. With well, the as the euro as the euro yeah, comes down and the like, actually you, castles in dollar France parody. are incredibly cheap. And and like there's an entire TV program in the UK called Chateau something DIY. It's never Chateau. been this cheap for an American though. <laughs> no, probably not. But there's already lots of British people who've bought chateaus and made them into hotels and they do them all DIY and and then they realize there's a reason why you don't own a chateau because it's actually a nightmare to I look to at those I look at those roofs. What are they? Hundred year roofs yeah. and you're buying it in the ninety-ninth year. And uh I'm and insulating it, that, yeah. It, it's <laughs> gotta cost pits. it's gotta cost two million dollars to replace those roofs. Like they're, they're like money pits. High pitched. You, you, you can get them for a song because they're absolutely cost an absolute fortune to <laughs> <laughs> So you go there like this whole place needs new new floors and then you go you're like well we need, Usually floors. They need plumbing and they need yeah. like, you know electricity I mean, electricity yeah oh actually and, in the current situation maybe buying a medieval castle is a bit cool because you you just go back all the way to the to the setup of the pre-electrical era that we're now going through because uh, France, you know that France has nationalized edf this week, last week, they're about to anyway. Um, well, here's, a, here's a little anecdotal snippet. The house I live in originally didn't have electric lighting. Oh, well, that that's, you know, and in it, America. It originally had gas lighting. We know that because we still have the gas points in the walls. In the US, uh, in the Northeast, there's old homes, right? The pre-electric homes. You can buy them, you know, they're, they're, 100 200 years old and and they're like you go in you're like wow this is a beautiful house <laughs> you can live in them they're fine they're you know electrified and everything but it is it is interesting like where i live here in florida if you find a home older than 30 years old uh it's you gotta tear it down <laughs> it has to be torn down yeah, you have like, the, you have liking for making your houses out of wood this is absolutely not a good idea if you want them to last in, in the no in the northeast made out of wood too but down here oh, really? oh, but i down, don't know down here we make them out of like matchboxes they're awful yeah. in florida they're the worst i can't believe how bad they are they're just terrible homes i think it's because it's so caustic here and that like they just know they're like look in 10 years 15 years this home needs to be taken down we just build it with the new but material that's whatever that one is. of the reasons you can't you cannot build houses like you used to in the victorian era anymore the cost of materials alone yeah. makes it prohibitively expensive look, the stone quarry the whole castle is made out of marble from italy yeah i mean <laughs> the, the economics are such that like we can't, go back. we can't go back to that era even we can't even probably go back to the early you know, post-war period because the like the housing costs are just like the material costs are just out of this world expensive. We we've been looking at uh like I, I was up in Rhode Island up in Newport a couple a couple of months ago with my wife and we went to a couple of the Newport mansions and I thought the same thing about them, Isabel. Like they're these grandiose, like full granite like built things. And I'm just like, you know, I feel like you know you can buy that house right now for like twenty four million dollars maybe, maybe thirty. Uh, but I feel like if you were to build it, like getting the materials out of the ground, bringing them there, it'd be like a $2 billion project. <laughs> it'd just be crazy. Oh, probably right. But look, we're facing this massive crisis now. And I think this is a good sort of arc to finish the conversation mm -hmm. on is, um, you know, we have this extended infrastructure that needs a lot of electricity and power to maintain it. And we are obviously in the midst of all these sanctions and um, there is a, in my opinion, a, an incredibly naive perspective, which is coming from the like economic and um, 
financial world, actually, that we can somehow print our way, like money print our way out of this problem. And I, I am befuddled and confused as to why people think that. Um, because when you have a commodity shortage, which is effectively what we've now manufactured, you and, and the system, the system that we've constructed needs X amount of energy. Like you can you can try and make it more efficient, like fair enough, or you can do lockdown to, to stop consumption to some degree, but but you need X amount um, to to fund any any transition from a from the current system into a new system as well. So either way, you are exposed to this energy uh, shortage in ways that can in it'll inevitably lead to wealth erosion um and i i don't i don't what i francis what i find fascinating is that there is still this perspective that that we can print our like that we can financially engineer our way out of it what no, do we you can't we can't we absolutely can't because it's a real resource constraint exactly I mean, if there's one insight i would take actually from mmt it is that because it's something they've gone on about because you know, they got a, 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 accused of all sorts of ideas about money printing and everything else. But they have always said you cannot, you, that real resource constraints are real and you can't um, use um, government deficits, money printing or anything to, to resolve a real resource constraint. Well, isn't that actually the, the claim of MMT is that you can print until those constraints show their ugly heads essentially? And once they bite, you're stuffed. And that is where we are. We cannot print our way out of this. We really can't. We were able to print our way uh, print our way through the COVID pandemic because actually we weren't dealing with real resource There's constraints. There's no velocity either. Then. Um, and well, there was a, a crashing velocity because nobody could spend any money. So, you know, I mean, it, printing arguably wasn't the best idea anyway. Um, but certainly the, en the energy crisis, it's a real resource constraint. Printing is not going to solve it. Do you, do you think that this is MMT? Because the way that I see it is this is like an amalgam of lots of economists' bad ideas and then, and then a little like MMT salt sprinkled on. I and think then they're like, this is MMT. It, it just doesn't seem like it is no. actual MMT to me. It's not. It's it's uh, And it's actually a little unfair to MMT. I have my issues with MMT because I, I think there are a few parts of their theory that I think are weak. Um, but I, a lot of the things they get accused of and blamed for um, are not MMT. Kind of infinite money printing is not MMT. It just isn't. Very enormous government, government deficits um funded government deficits actually are not mmt i know that they say you know the government the government deficit is the savings of the private sector that's just a matter of accounting um or the um net saving that, that seems to me to be all of mmt is like a lot of it is matters of accounting like the idea yeah. that taxation and printing achieve exactly the same outcomes i think that's inarguable yes it, it is just a matter of accounting. And then but where, where I think we get into difficulties is we start when we start taking what are fundamentally um, issues, A, of economics and uh, of economics of distribution and political questions and start saying this is MMT. And actually, no, if MMT is simply a matter of, of this is how the plumbing works, this is how the accounting works, um, how you deploy it, how you use it, um, how you distribute your scarce resources, um, which is what we've hit now, um, is not fundam fundamentally an MMT problem at all. It's a political question more than anything else. So but we have scarce energy. Do we distribute it? But to what degree, um, I mean, was the kind of furlough style printing the in an indirect kind of 
cause of where we are now. Like obviously Russia has come in and, and sanctions have have hit anyway. But I'm I'm actually of the opinion that we would be in this inflationary uh, situation. Like for me, Russia is just the 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 kind of fuel on the fire that is already burning. Um, and I get that MMT. Um, I agree with you on MMT to a certain degree. And I think, um, you know, they always say that you can control inflation of tax. For example, that was always the um, the break that you could apply to if and when uh, you start to see these these constraints, right? But I, I, I kind of feel like a lot of the stuff that's presented as MMT is really just insights from other theories, okay. kind of cobbled it's not necessarily anything new um and where they where the weakness is 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 actually in in the fact that politicians misunderstand what mmt is and they then actually use it to justify things like a stimulus uh check at the point where i think most economists who were reasonably minded were like well this is not the time to do a stimulus check yeah, I mean, I, I I actually ended up rather no platform because I opposed because I opposed um, all the um, ideas people had in the early stages of the pandemic about doing demand stimulus of various kinds, um, and I couldn't get published because what they wanted me to talk about things like universal basic income and um, helicopter money, and I was going, this is the wrong time. You shouldn't be doing this now. Targeted yeah. targeted support to keep people alive, yes, but you need to be keeping businesses alive as well. Otherwise, you're going to have supply side problems when we when we reopen. And boy, was I right about that. Oh um, boy, were you? I mean, this is it is it is interesting. Like, what really what's curious to me about sort of the modern way in which economies are managed is that you have all of these theories out there presented by economists, whatever whatever the theories, whether it's efficient markets, whether it's MMT, I don't know. Georgism, uh, our favorite uh, taxation uh, method here at uh, Blind Spot, right, Isabella? George, <laughs> you're stand value tax, are you? All right, okay. The Georgist thing. But uh, we're Georgists. Uh, but but they, okay, these, these are then these are then fed through the filter of politics, and then they come out the other end. And it's politicians who ultimately implement these things, and that seems like highly problematic from a systemic standpoint to me, that it's the politicians that are implementing the ideas of economists. Like, how, what do you do to solve that? It, it, am I wrong? It's huge. It's huge. Well, um, you, you, ro you roboted. You roboted. Say that again. Oh, did I? Yes. yes. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it's your um, fault. Yeah, always. <laughs> <laughs> um, politicians pick the 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 economic theories that suit their their worldview. Um, they don't even so understand them, right? Like, no, they, they don't not really. At all. Not at all. And so economists can line up saying this is bonkers. You shouldn't be doing it this way. But there will be enough economists saying, "Oh, you really need to do stimulus checks while you're closing the while you're closing the economy." One hundred percent. Yeah. And um, and the economy and politicians will say, yeah, we'll do that because that will buy me votes. Um, I mean, there was I, I I found it incredible. And also the way in which myths get written in real time and you can see them being written in real time. So I don't fundamentally have a problem with the furlough scheme. I do have a problem with um, 
I have a bit of a problem with the SACE scheme, which was helicopter money. It meets the definition. There were five drops. Um, this I have the, this was in the UK, right? Yeah, I have a very considerable problem with the pickup loans, the startup loans that they did for small businesses, because they were obviously just not going to be used. They were, it, they, the opportunities of, of the fraud were too great. But you look I at like the US. I, I liked them. US. Um, the US was doing almost indiscriminate helicopter drops um, in at the same time as it was closing the economy down. This didn't make any sort of sense. I, I think it, it does make I think it makes sense in one. It it makes one sort of conspiratorial uh, sense to me in, in one in one in one sense. It seemed to me that there was there is this forward looking goal to build infrastructure for the eventual implementation of UBI, and this seemed like an interesting time to practice that. Like that's that's the only thing I, I can I say would, about what I happened. I would agree with that. I think that is precisely. Um whether conscious or unconscious uh, that's what i'm not sure about but there are forces at work that are absolutely cobbling together the infrastructure to allow for money to be demonetized in a way and turned into raw data which then can manage consumption because at the end of the day i as i've always said money is just a rationing system and and it's just that we allow the market to determine how you earn your rations. Like if you replace the word money and ration, I think it's very similar. Um, but with um, with the new kind of CBDC environment, and I think there was um, a piece recently sort of saying that an account-based money uh, in the UK, I think it was a UK politician saying that it will be very different to conventional bearer uh, notes because it's going to be linked to your identity. And... Oh consumption and it will creep down the social credit system where it's no longer the neutrality of money that determines like how what you can access in the in the economy based on how much money you have in a price fund function it's going to be whether you whether the system um assumes that you have you, you're entitled to that and that means if you are overweight or if you seen as a burden on the nhs or blah 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 you won't get that ice cream until uh, you know you've lost two pounds or whatever. It's like uh, that's how I see it inevitably going. But I see that as, as a function of the technocratic bureaucratic state, which has got out of control and dehumanized itself in the process, and it's so obsessed with managing the system and making sure it's sta stable. It doesn't understand that actually, perhaps um, a little instability is also necessary because we humans learn through um, controlled mistakes. And I, I, I think getting rid of controlled mistakes is a really bad, bad situation for humanity and freedom myself. That's another story, but on freedom, Francis, what do you think then um, about the Scottish independence move and what should they do with their currency and what do you think they'll do? Okay, I looked at this before because <laughs> they had an independence referendum in 2014 and I looked at the Scottish currency question then and concluded that there are no good options, actually. No. It's really hard. Um, but the best option, um, arguably, is actually for them to have their own currency. Um, but the problem is, you know, is, is the market credibility one. If they have a floating currency, they're a new country with, with no credibility, possibly starting out life with a fairly sizable debt load as well and a, and a big deficit. Um, and and what will happen to that currency? So we've got um, people like uh, people, some people saying, well, what they need is a currency board, to which I say, well, they, I would say, but they've already got one. 
how does that change anything um in, in effect um they're talking about they're talking about sterlingization but if they're sterlingized then they're effectively handing over control of monetary and, and to some extent fiscal policies real, real quick to, let me let me stop you real quick to the uk For the it, americans what are the options that are on the table for Scotland? Like, Americans don't know anything about this. So okay. just uh, from real quick, the, the helicopter or the elevator pitch, what is going on in Scotland? What's like the possible decision? Okay. That needs to be made about the money. If Scotland chooses to leave the UK, and that would be what would be decided in a referendum, then it would then have to decide whether it continued to use the British pound um, or created its own currency, which could be called the pound, as indeed Ireland's currency was after it's gained independence from the UK, or eventually, ultimately, whether it um, joined the euro. Those really are the three options. Um, and there have been some fairly bonkers ideas about um, about dollarizing as well, but I'm, I'm not sure that's really right. That, that was all based upon an idea that they would be a major oil producer, I think. Scotland? Um, but like in terms of in the past, yeah, in the past, yeah. In keeping with the concept of independence, the most obvious one is is launching your own independent, freely floating currency. And the concern, of course, is that they are too debt like laden and too dependent on the UK to have any, um, you know, the, the currency be incredibly weak and and cause a massive devaluation uh, effect. But um, but. Here's the, like in 2022, my question is, does Scotland suddenly have a little bit more uh, leverage in the game in the sense that it has still, okay, not it's dwindling, but it's still got oil, right? And it's still, and it's got Trident. Yeah. Oh, no, it definitely, turns, has, it definitely has some That turns it into a kind of like Vladimir Putin situation for the UK mm -hmm. um, and, and a sort of renegade Donetsk. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying to say that like Scotland is Donbass, but it kind of is as well. <laughs> except it wants I to. I honestly think we would end up. I huh? think we would end up with something similar to what happened after Ireland became independent. Actually, mm -hmm. where Ireland had its own currency, but it was pegged mm -hmm. to the UK pound for for a long time. Um, I Ireland um, didn't have any, any oil, right? And it didn't have yeah. any. Um, like deep sea port capacity for nukes no and uh, it didn't have quite, quite so many bargaining counters but um my point is that it that, that even so it had this agreement with the uk and there was a fair degree of support um they also fought massively over time i mean they fought a vicious trade war britain and and ireland despite the currency peg it, it was really very unpleasant in the 1930s and i'd hope that wouldn't happen because it seems to me that actually um, it's not in the rest of the UK's interests to fall out with Scotland massively. It's not I've, in their interests not to support. I've always, I've always it's been amazed. not in their interests not to support Scotland's currency. I've always been amazed by the notion of small countries with smaller pools of talent for econ economic, economists and such designing their own economic system. It mm. seems like a massively complicated undertaking that like is difficult to compete with when you have giant countries like the US or uh, the UK, you know, far along the path. Is there, is, how do countries launch these from zero? Like, is there a template that they're using? It's, it just, it blows my mind that you can do that. 
that you can just kind of launch an economy. It kind of rarely happens, really. Yeah. It's fair to say that the examples we have before us of countries that have separated from a larger a larger power, if you like, and gone their own way, um, they have tended to be quite poor for a long time. Um, yeah. I mean, Slovakia to this, to this day is poorer than the Czech Republic. The U.S. had massive problems in its yeah. early days uh, launching. Of so I, um, it, oh, we've lost Isabella. We don't need her. We can't hear you. You're muted. You <laughs> <laughs> pressed the wrong button. <laughs> no, I, I, no, but you, you make a really good point. And I, all I will say is that um, it's not like the Irish independence situation didn't like lead to massive troubles. Absolutely. Literal troubles. Well, um, I, it's a little bit different, though, Isabella, because the problem there is that actually Ireland didn't achieve full independence. Um, part of Ireland was carved out and remained in the UK, and they've been fighting over it, over it ever since. I would hope that wouldn't happen with Scotland, that we wouldn't have sort of the equivalent of South Ossetia, um, which is what Northern Ireland is, you know, like where you had these, or even Donbass. But you would, you would inevitably get that because you would inevitably get loyalists to the to England still in the geography of Scotland. Yes, yes, you would, but that's rather different, isn't it? Where the whole country breaks away and says, "Right, we're independent now." Those loyalists don't like it; they have to move. Yeah. Um, that's different, isn't it? From where you're saying, "Well, we're going to carve out six counties from yeah. Ireland and keep them in the UK." Because the people in that those six counties don't want to be part of an independent island, which is actually what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's a very different situation. It's 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 more akin to the kind of things we see happening in Eastern Europe. So it's, yeah. it's the equivalent of creating something like Nagorno-Karabakh. I mean, yeah. it really is. And and if you look at what's happened in Eastern Europe when those kind of protective Russian-facing enclaves have been created, they're often under United Nations protection. And there, I, in my view, has been at, in the past a strong case for United Nations protection for Northern Ireland. The Good Friday Agreement moves us on beyond that, hopefully, but that itself is under threat now because if we come out the ECHR, then we also end the, the Good Friday Agreement. So it may well be that we'll face this again that um, we've created that kind of a British-facing enclave within Ireland. Um, and it's it's a disputed territory. And, um, yeah, what is the solution long-term? Now, if we look at Scotland, that should not happen. And it's really important that it doesn't happen. We don't get this kind of carving out of bits of Scotland to stay in the UK. If they vote for independence, they've, all, they've got to leave in their entirety. And to my mind, they've got to make, they, uh, this is a bit like my attitude to Brexit, where if you're going to Brexit, then do it cleanly, um, do it properly, don't do it in a half-baked way. You need to do the same with Scotland, that it would need to have its own currency. But that said, it's not in the UK's interests for Scotland's currency to collapse. So I would suggest that there would the very Francis, remind me that would keep it up. Wasn't your position on Brexit like either like you, you were strongly opposed to it, right? Except yep. if you're going to do it, do it cleanly. Absolutely. I was, yeah. I, 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 what I thought it was, um, it, it's like an unstable equilibrium that if we, we either voted to, to stay or we voted to leave. And if we voted to leave, then we needed to leave. You couldn't have this kind of one foot in, one foot out. Yeah. It wasn't going to work. Um, and, and I said so, and I said so quite publicly in the Financial Times two weeks after the referendum. Yeah, no, and I and I agree about the clean break thing because that sort of half half thing is ridiculous. Yeah. But um, 
on that bombshell though um although maybe i shouldn't bring up bombshells um the, <laughs> um, no, it is complex, and it just makes me think. You know, does just to wrap it back into crypto, and you were talking about birthing so like sovereign nations, like that is the metaverse is kind of like trying to edge in there with this idea that we can create these whole entire new sovereign spaces where people organize not according to the pre-existing geography, but in terms mm. of values or in terms of you know other variables right so you can be of a nation but not be necessarily value aligned with that nation and still live out in this fantasy world um in the metaverse although i'm i'm incredibly cynical about the metaverse but i will say that i went to see abba voyage um at the weekend and that was in this like incredible dome that they created to um to project all these uh holograms and of course that wasn't even that wasn't like goggles or anything that was just reality and and the the technology is absolutely insane and uh who knows like can the, the metaverse explanation isabella is very very obvious to me all that's going on here is that these vcs have discovered what they believe to be uh diamonds on an asteroid that they can mine it's mm -hmm. the ever it's the ever growth economy <laughs> like it's literally they believe that like oh now we can enter the digital space and we can make land everywhere and you can buy land in all the metaverses and own a house in all the metaverses and then you can live in a tiny little like three by three condo and like just mm -hmm. wake up in the mornings and get in your metaverse space suit and then like your little thing and like strap yourself in and just walk around all day in the metaverse and then you take the metaverse goggles off and you sleep at night. And that's like the world that they think is going to exist. And the reason they want it is because it feels like a universe with infinitely expanding economic opportunity. And it's and, and it's stupid. Yes. Well, I, I've, I just find it incredibly like what will in, inevitably happen is that some section of society will be relegated to the metaverse and the rest will be allowed to kind of she Wells writes about this, right? We have the Eloy and uh, the Mor the Warlock the Morlocks, yeah. And uh, the Morlocks are the Trump supporters, and they show up every four years and eat the Eloy, who think the whole world is no. Um, the uh, the but but that's this idea. Like, I don't think that's even. I don't think you have to worry about that at all. I think what's going to happen is exactly the same thing that happened to Second Life. There's going to be three or four years here of exuberance about this metaverse thing. There's going to be kids going to college. We're making swords and building houses in the metaverse and making hundreds of thousands of year. It'll be three of them, but they'll get covered in the New York Times as if this is like a massive movement. People will try it and then it will devolve to people having sex and porn. Well, it could go that way. And I was uh, and gambling. Selling, selling pictures of bored apes. Yes. Absolutely. And, yeah. And, and, and gambling. And now uh, the bored apes will be gone. All that stuff gone. Biden's metaverse data gets hacked. <laughs> <laughs> I think to, to, I, I would I, when I hear this kind of thing being discussed, I always want to bring it back down to us, literally, and say we are physical. We are physical creatures. We live on land. We we breathe air. We drink water. We eat. Food. Says the lady talking to two people in the metaverse. I know, but I'm aware <laughs> that I'm sitting here talking to two people in the metaverse. One of whom is a very long way away from me, but I'm still physically sitting in a room in a chair. 
sweltering in the heat yeah. sweltering in the heat and <laughs> rapidly needing a drink and, you know that these that the, ultimately the the physical site we are physical creatures we live yes. in a physical world and that actually in and if the physical world falls apart it meant we fall apart it, you can't separate humans from the physical like that it doesn't work like that if if humans it it it, it if the have, physical world disintegrated, so would the metaverse. It depends ultimately on it. It's more like the puta. Um, and that's so, a bad Spanish word. No, it's Gulliver's Travels. La puta. What is it? La, la puta. Floating islands. The floating island in Gulliver's oh, Travels. You're dirty. Oh, mind. oh, that Gulliver's Travels. <laughs> you're dreadful. Lily, you mean Lily? <laughs> Lily put. No, Laputa. La Laputa. It's a floating island. I haven't read that book in so long. Ah. Oh, there you um, go. So, but but um, you you we can't separate separate ourselves from that. Um, and and if you're not very careful, the, the metaverse could simply be aware of this kind of um, escapism, um, kind of um, opium, if you like, and opium, if you like. Total um, escapism and total like um, it is isn't. It's the latest iteration of an opium den. It is the. It is the. That is a very good analogy, I think. Isn't um, I mean, it's enough to an opium den is. Well, it's it's a nihilism. It's a nihilism den. It's, it's, nihilism. it's a little different because, and it's ultimately like, harmful because we are physical creatures, and living like that would be extremely bad for us. This is this is why I think the, my point about like the card cutters is interesting because like we have entire generation of people right now who are suffering this nihilism and it's really interesting to me because like the metaverse idea for them seems like can you can you imagine any time in your life given that you're a social person who likes people who you know has a husband or partner or whatever and uh you know like etc cetera, etc cetera, all this stuff you you eat ice cream with the kids or you know friends kids or whatever there's things you like to do in the real world can you imagine ever in your entire life thinking that you would have more fun or more hope and more like day-to-day -day things to do in a digital world filled with people who you don't know. No. Like th that seems so sad to me. No, and because ultimately it, it must come back to real to reality again. I mean this is and there's an entire generation like the early days of Twitter where you talk to all these people um on 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 Twitter, but then we used we used to organize tweet ups. Yeah. So you can actually go and meet the people who you'd been talking to on Twitter. But, but Francis, there's an entire generation of people for whom this sounds like a compelling pitch. That's the thing that worries me. Mm. And then when you go to to see the potential of it and you realize actually, now after, like I said, after the ABBA thing, I'm just convinced everyone's a hologram. I mean, are you really, it is really, I'm not. well, you could be. I mean, <laughs> you might have been like, you know, killed by someone, maybe, you know. All right, and, Francis, she knows we're AIs. Turn it off. Be sure. <laughs> I mean, um, if you want immortality, if you want immortality, then I guess creating an an, an, an infinitely lived avatar of yourself in the metaverse. Yes. I think, guys, because we're coming up to time, but I think this the, the three of us, I think we should revisit this space. But I think we should we should like focus on the metaverse as a sort of like christian analogy for, for all sorts of like interesting things concepts are in the bible because mm. it does feel incredibly of the uh of the kind of revelatory uh you know 
world. I mean, in in the sense that so much of the Bible kind of, I mean, I don't want it to descend into Bible talk, but it does feel so um, weird how prophetically um, accurate some of that stuff has been. And whether it's the Bible, whether it's the Quran, I'm sure there are all sorts of holy texts that have in some ways anticipated this sort of like um, mass abstraction and, 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 ascent into this virtual world that you know what is it like is it like is it you know is it really us kind of creating heaven on earth or is it just a um uh technological um what's the word when you when when somebody's trying to a sleight of hand effectively um that it would be it would be an interesting show i think maybe for some people mm -hmm. um but on that note maybe <laughs> what do you <laughs> Do you think I'm talking rubbish? It is entirely possible. No, it, it, it is very obviously a technological sleight of hand. There's no question. Yeah. And it's 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 driven, it's driven by VCs exploiting the nihilism of a generation. And that to me is like the most interesting pitch I've ever seen. Like because I look at the metaverse and I think like generations they, they I'll talk to Gen Zers and, and uh millennial young millennials and they'll be like you just don't understand what it's like. This is so much better. You know, like they'll, they'll explain it to it. I'm just, I'm just kind of sitting there thinking like, Hey, have you ever had a friend? Do you, well, have you been hugged or loved? Isolated. Um, where, where, and I think lockdown is only going to normalize. And I, I, I suspect lockdown will happen again because we, we have normalized it as a thing. So I suspect it will happen again. So a generation that grows up in this sort of forced isolation um, environment is obviously going to think anything like the metaverse is an improvement on, on having just nothing in your little two bed, you know, two bedroom flat or whatever. But um, yeah, no, it's scary and, and weird. And I guess that's what we're going to be exploring on this podcast. Um but for now, I hate to break things apart, but um, I think um, I think we another should three hours. I got time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we should do this full Joe Rogan. Although Mark Andreessen was recently on Joe Rogan, and he was talking about they were like I only I only ever get through like an hour of Joe Rogan. Um, <laughs> so anyone still listening to this, well done. Um, but the um, they were touching on similar sort of like Mark's. Uh, perspective on on Nietzsche and 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 all that stuff and what the he thinks the metaverse means, they got into that sort of territory quite quite um, in quite in a lot of detail. So uh, that if you've not listened to it, I if you want if you want to have if you want to hear Mark Andreessen's take on like religion, that's your uh, opportunity. Um, but yeah, it was the first time I ever liked Mark Andreessen, by the way, was that interview. I I, I can't stand that guy. <laughs> you listen to it. Yeah. All three hours. Yeah. Oh, goodness. I'm a millennial. I have a very like I'm millennials are known for their attention spans. Amazing. Well, I don't have three hours, so I am going to <laughs> I'm going to call it a day. But Frank Francis. I'm going to give you the last word because we hear from I hear from Josh all the time. So, <laughs> is there anything um, pertinent to still say, whether it's about Voyager, Free uh, AC, the Scottish Pound, or um, our soon-to-be uh, virtualized existence in the metaverse? Well, it strikes me that much of what's going on right now actually is predicted one way or another in the um, science fiction of the Cold War era. So 
I would kind of recommend and fantasy fiction as well, not just science fiction. So when we were talking just now about the metaverse and this sort of disembodied, bodiless existence, I was um, reminding it of, of um, a series by Julian May, um, one about which is actually all about ESP, the extra sensory powers and things like that, which we don't have, but we will, I think, create, which I think we will create. Um, and there was one particular book in the series called Jack the Bodiless, which is about somebody who became entirely disembodied. It was literally just a brain. And it seems to me that the metaverse is taking us in that direction. So there you go. On that non-bombshell, I won't say bombshell again, although I just did, thank you very much for joining us and making it through to this two-hour mark. <laughs> it's goodbye from me. Bye-bye. Bye, -bye. That long. <laughs> Bye everyone. <laughs> Yeah, Thanks for listening. Three hours. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm ending the broadcast now. Thank you. Um.